Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon, here with my co-host, Eric Trexler. Eric, good hello, morning, hello. Rachel. Happy Friday. Uh, looking good this morning. <laughs> Thanks. Just finished a three-mile run. Lost track of time, but I'm here on time. So how, how fast was that run? Would it take you like seven minutes to run that three miles? or? Uh... No, as I, I get, as I get older, I slow down. I was doing sprints today, so it, uh, it was uh, probably about a 9.30, 10-minute mile, but, but quick, slow, quick, slow. I feel shamed this morning. I just, I mean, I haven't even, you know, I've been focused on making breakfast, so. <laughs> Rachel, who is that voice we hear? I know, I am so excited. We've got Jill Toro, the Senior Vice President of Content Strategy at Cyber Risk Alliance, joining us again. Jill, welcome back. It's so welcome, to be here. I'm excited to be back. I have to say, and I know this makes me biased, but this is like the most fun podcast that I do, so <laughs> I love it. Well, please feel, feel free to tell everyone. Yes. <laughs> We certainly will. And there's always so much to talk about. I mean, it's that's what makes it so fun. But I, I do want to kick off and just say, you know, again, congratulations on the awesome reporting you guys are doing over at SC Media. I mean, I, I just can't say enough good things about it. It's it's my favorite go-to read. Uh, you guys are always hitting, you know, the hot stuff. And it's it's just such great reporting. And, you know, Joe Uchel is, is definitely, we're a huge fan of him. Always. Yes. He's hilarious. Yes. I follow his Twitter. Yes. <laughs> yes. We had him on the show. <laughs> so for yeah, anybody who, who wants to know, SC <laughs> Daily Scan is, is a daily yes. email that'll drop in your box. I get it every morning yes. at 6 a.m., I think. Yeah. It's I'm early. I read it. Beginning of my day, and it is outstanding. It's yes. not your normal, I, I don't know, it's not your normal daily brief, if you would, but it's all about cybersecurity, and it's, it's awesome. Oh, thank you. Thank you. We have an awesome team. I say it all the time. We built it out over the last couple of years, and they're great. Um, they really are. We have it covered well. I'm hoping we grow it even bigger, but we're, we're doing well with this group so far. And Jill, you don't do a weekly summary or anything, do you? It's, it's Monday through Friday, 6 in the morning. It's Monday through Friday, though I like that, actually, Eric. And we're talking about new introductions in terms of newsletters. But uh, right now, it's a daily. It's everything we publish every okay. day is the daily scan. And then we do have, like, we have a weekly threat intel um, uh, and cybercrime newsletter. We have a weekly cloud newsletter. We have a weekly government focusing on the federal government newsletter. We have a weekly healthcare, weekly finance. And then we have an alert where it's basically like, you know what? This is big news. We're going to shoot you an email in the middle of the day, whenever yeah, the news broke, and make sure you get it. So that's what we have now. But we have more emerging. We're talking about doing a leadership newsletter awesome. um, in terms of workforce, careers, and leadership. And we do talk about something like the – like. A roundup. I, I don't want to go into too much, but my former job, we had what was called the early bird and it was for mm. the defense community. And we had all of our content, but we also had everybody else's content so that it was a single read of everything you could possibly want. So I would love to do something like that in cyber. I also, in cyber. Yeah. I, I also read the, the early bird every yeah. day, like in it's the morning, cool. six, six to six thirty ish. 
that's when I do my my scanning, and and those are two the early bird, and then and then the CyberWire, yeah, which I don't know, maybe a competitor. I read that on Saturdays before I go and work out. Yep. Yeah, no, there's great. I do like that weekly, the weekly scan. But yeah, it's you you do have some great, great writers. It's enjoyable to read and it keeps me up to speed before I get my day going. That's great to hear. That's great to hear. Okay, Rachel. I know. So where where do we start? Where Where do we start? Where to kick (laughs) off? I think, um, well, let's let's, uh, hit on a really hot topic that's still in the news Ukraine. Um, A lot, a lot, a lot going on there. There's been, you know, Kind of on a previous podcast, Jill, we were talking about, you know, kind of this, the whole, the world's first cyber war, you know, kind of being in the thick of that as Ukraine and Russia, but also as it spills over into other areas. Um, But uh, there was an interesting development, Microsoft getting involved, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, recently, and I I would love for you to kind of share a little bit more of that uh, with our listeners and kind of, you know, let's talk a little bit, are we poking the bear here with Microsoft jumping in the fray? Yeah, so um, Microsoft basically has has done this before in terms kind of proactively going in, grabbing certain domains uh, uh, that are tied to ransomware gangs and almost what you call burying them in a server so they can't infiltrate technology. Um, You know, it's it's interesting and, um, you know, it's significant. They've done this repeated, repeatedly with this particular group kind of known as fancy bear, generally speaking. Um, you know, it's significant, but like, you know, like I mentioned, I feel like this is sort of where we are in cyber response because I mean, this, the, the proactive big measures are necessary, especially when you're talking about the cyber espionage, ransomware gangs tied to nation states and so forth. I mean, Microsoft did it for their own vulnerability, if you really think about it, right. with Microsoft Exchange Server, whenever the heck that was. Now it seems like years so long ago, but working with FBI to kind of go in and proactively remove, you know, um, vulnerabilities from systems in the, you know, private sector, that was a bold move too. And everyone thought that was going to be controversial. So I feel like this is the best that private companies can do without doing true offensive security tactics, which I think generally speaking, everybody kind of frowns upon. So, and they'll, they'll pop back up. That's what these groups do. It's they kind of, you know, there's a big response. They go quiet, you know, or, you know, all NATO nations get involved. They go quiet and they pop up with a different name. So, you know, it's a cat and mouse game for sure. Right. So what we're talking about here is APT 28 fancy bear was targeting Ukrainian media organizations Mm -hmm. and Microsoft took seven of their internet domains off the line offline, which they've yep. done before. Yep. Yeah. And, is- and I, I agree with you, Joe. I think they probably have a script to just create new domains and move the operation laterally. Oh yeah. Like and- it, it would be so easy. Yeah. yeah. And in terms of the poking the bear scenario, I mean, what actually I have found kind of inspiring is like the cyber community at large, you know, Microsoft can go big and do something like this and work with law enforcement, but we've seen like a lot of pretty bold moves from the cybersecurity community. I mean, right from the get-go, there were companies that were offering free software and services to Ukrainian enterprises. Some were kind of, you know, supporting government. I mean, it there has been kind of an influx of companies standing up and saying, no, we're getting involved. So, you know, it's, 
I, I think Microsoft can can go a little bolder because of the resources they have and the relationships they have. But I think that's appropriate. I think a, a lot of groups are getting involved and going right to the line of what I think can be done in this situation. So it's kind of cool. You know, I, I always wonder if, if when the domains disappear, do you, does the adversary complain to Microsoft? <laughs> yeah. Hey, you took my domains <laughs> offline. Or do they just go away and move? Do they just shift because they are guilty of, of uh, you know, l let's just call them uh, not so pleasant operations, right? Do they just move or do they actually file a formal complaint? Well, if they were legitimate. Really yeah, it's funny you say that because we've done a lot of reporting in terms of some of the larger ransomware gangs truly functioning like right. a business and yes. operate even in terms of the attacks and the kind of forms they give you. Here's what's next. It's like a very professional wow. operation, customer right. service. I mean, <laughs> so I wouldn't be surprised if they were just like, you know, come on, you're infringing upon our, our operation here. So it's, it's Dimitri, amazing. go and file a report with Microsoft. You've got <laughs> yeah. this one. Bring us back online. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. It's pretty, well, pretty I'm, cool. I, I'm expecting more of the same. Microsoft will continue to play whack-a-mole. Not a bad thing to do, but yeah. I'm expecting they'll move laterally and continue on. APT-28 Fancy Bear, which is which is the uh, Russian military intelligence, the GRU, reportedly, they've been in operation a long time. They've been mm -hmm. doing this a long time, and I suspect they will keep doing it for a much longer time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's Russia's approach, and I think that um, the group's you know, go about this with the expectation that there'll be a response in some degree. And they, they have pulled it off for, for many years. So it'll keep happening. Yeah. And um, right. I think Microsoft, you know, will the companies get bolder in what they do? You know, um, I don't know. We'll see. I mean, I have been, it's been interesting to watch kind of what Microsoft and other companies have done in, in terms of partnership with law enforcement and the FBI and the Justice Department. Um, you know, it's happened before, but I feel like we're seeing it more often. So whether that's because Russia and, you know, you know, certain groups and cybercrime groups are becoming more bold, so it's demanding a bolder response, or just that we're getting better at it, I don't know. When I think one of the things we'll see, or we are seeing, is, is the enhancement of that public-private public partnership, yes. the relationships, right? Who do I work with at FBI? Who do I talk to at DHS? I know we're seeing that. And, and I can tell you, four or five years ago, it was a mess, right? Yeah. There, there, were, there were an infinite number of contacts. The information sharing was, was a disaster. Now we've got the JCDC. We have, yep. you know, we, we have a few um, systems set up today that allow for better information sharing. So. As the as the adversary does get more bold, I do think we'll be able to, you know, we'll be quicker. Will we? Yeah. Will we ever get ahead of them? Not my prediction, but right. I think we'll be. I do think we'll be quicker. Yeah, I think solar winds, and I think we talked about that last time I was on. Amazing how much has happened since. But I think it was a wake up call in terms of cooperation, um, because it was kind of it ended up very encouraging when you look at what, you know, FireEye and Microsoft and government were doing together. But I think in the beginning, it was a little um, segment and in terms of response and what we were hearing and who it was coming from. So I feel like it's come a long way since then, I would say. But there's still a long ways to go. Government always has the problem of should we share this? 
right. can we share this? Right. And I think they err um, on reluctance more often than they need to. So we'll see. Well, I could tell you some stories. I can't think of it. I'd love to. <laughs> just how long it takes to declassify something yeah. that commercial industry already has. <laughs> yes. Rachel, yeah. the answer is forever in many cases. They yeah. just can't do it. And it's like, I have it right here in commercial <laughs> databases. And, yeah. and it's, it's, I can show it is ridiculous. No, 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 yeah. I gave you the information to begin with. Yeah, but it's classified on our side. Well, yeah. decla- it's, it's a nightmare. Oh, yes. Definitely an inhibitor. Yep. Always has been, for sure. Um, Not just in cyber, cross government. Yeah. Yeah. It's on those on that theme though, and one of the things that Eric knows is I'm really fascinated about is is kind of the volunteer cyber army aspect of things that are happening here, um, and and how do you turn that on and off, right? And and you can't really manage a 200 person volunteer cyber army, you know, re- regardless of which side they're on, and. Um, and I also know, like you know, this whole spillover thing too, right? You know, trying to walk that line. Everything's about this fine line, Jill. And it's yep. fascinating to me. And, and now we're hearing, you know, Article Five, Article Five, you know, and this, you know, rapid response force for NATO. And um, you know, but is any of this actually going to like get triggered? Because we talk about it, but I don't think anyone wants to cross the line, though. No, and the talk of Article Five has been going on for years. I feel like yeah. I was, I remember reporting on it when I think it first became. I don't remember what year it was, but um, was first noted. And it was a big deal. It's like, okay, you know, yeah. um, this is this is relevant because if you before the U, this war, there was another war in Ukraine from Russia <laughs> that involved cyber tactics and Estonia. And I mean, this yeah. is not new. We've actually seen this before. Right. But they're very careful. You know, NATO is very careful in the phrasing, and they say it's got to be a serious. I mean, actually, what. Saltenberg came out and said on Twitter, I believe, was a serious cyber attack could trigger Article 5. Um, and it has to be where an attack against one ally is treated as an attack against all. But there's a lot of this there. What is a serious cyber attack? Right. And they even question how you define a cyber attack versus, you know, so they it's very wishy-washy. I feel like for it to really kind of push forward, there's going to need to be more of a frame, framework and a structure around these definitions um, because it's a bold move, but right now I don't feel like it's um, it has the standards in place to really kind of get moved forward because you have to remember too, you know, this would involve all NATO nations kind of in theory backing this. And that's always hard to do in any war time, you know, so deciding to go forward and respond to this as an act of war has ramifications on many, many countries, not just yeah. the one being attacked. So I, I think it's a very slippery slope, Rachel. I yeah. mean, I, it scares the hell out of me. Right. It's, yep. it's wh- where do you, where do you draw that line? And I, I feel like the line keeps inching back mm-hmm. Yes. as, as the adversary gets more bold as, as you know, the, the NATO nations get more bold even. But where do you draw that line? And when you draw that line, are you ready for the consequences? Right. I think you before before we before Article five would kick in, I think there needs to be major improvements um, in terms of collaborative efforts 
to counter the threat. And that's, you know, they came out with this rampant rapid response group, like you mentioned that, which is great, but let's be honest, it's going to be led by the U.S. It's mainly going to be financed by the U.S. Right. It's going to involve uh, companies. And I don't say that as, a, you know, U.S. is running everything in NATO, but that kind of was stated that, you know, yeah. U.S. is going to really take the lead. So I think there's a lot of disjointed um uh, standards for cyber response in different countries within yes. NATO and beyond NATO in terms of our allies. And I do believe there needs to be, to some degree, a convergence of those so that there's a playbook and how maybe not to go offensively, but how to respond. You know, when these countries' allies are attacked, you know, what is the instinctive response from NATO as a whole um, and from the countries themselves? Because that, too, isn't in place yet. Right. So, but yeah. what type of attack? I mean, is, right. is network probing an attack? Is, is disinformation an attack? Is, is taking a system temporarily offline attack? I, I remember I was at McAfee years ago, and something like 80% of all Internet traffic was routed through China mm. yep. um, for a couple, of, uh, a couple minutes or hours. I don't even remember. Like, yeah. is, is that an attack? Is that right. preparation for an attack? Like, how do you draw the line? And then how do you get however many NATO nations there are engaged and involved and in agreement and alignment? When many of them don't have the resources to necessarily do what some of the um, the larger countries with more um, with more money can put behind this. Exactly. So that's the other problem is you get a lot of these small NATO nations and they're like, we would love to do that. We don't have the resources. Are you going to provide the resources to do that? Which is challenge. But yeah, defining what is a cyber attack and then also being able to trace it back truly to being an act coming from an enemy nation state. They're really good about being able to claim, no, 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 we had nothing to do with this. I mean, Russia's, you know, the the attribution problem. Yeah. I mean, you have ransomware groups that are being generally protected by Moscow, but whether we are linking them directly, that's different. So it's challenging. And well, I'll, I'll all flip this it is on going you. On. Oh, go ahead, Rachel. No, go ahead because I'm gonna I'm I'm switching topics, Eric. I was ready. Okay, to, like, so real quick, court. I'll I'll flip it. Imagine, <laughs> I mean, you know, there are threats right now around Lithuania being yeah. attacked. Yes. Right. So imagine a cyber attack on Lithuania. Now you have the large NATO nations, U.S., U.K., Germany, whatever. At, at, if if we if we have a line that's drawn and we cross it, now we've got to support tiny Lithuania. And I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing, but it's very quick to be drawn in. You can see in Ukraine is where mostly kinetic here, physical attacks. You can see how carefully I think both sides are not to escalate this outside of that area of operations, right? Yes, absolutely. You can't attack U.S. artillery. Yep. Good. They're good at dancing that line in everything in terms of what can I do? Exactly. Yeah. How far can I go? And, you know, um, Lithuania is tricky because remember, Ukraine is not technically a NATO nation. So, you know, that's the other thing to keep in mind. So it's um, it is tricky because you support one and they're going to expect you to support many. Exactly. Yeah. And that's where those standards come in, where it's like, okay, but what? You know, what are we defining as crossing the line? And they haven't done that yet. That still has to happen. Yeah. Okay, Rachel, transition away. 
Well, you know, I'm always fascinated in kind of the duplicity happening in the cyber world. So while one thing's happening over here, there's another thing happening over here. And, you know, hey, maybe you're not going to notice that, you know, China's doing a little micro-targeting there. Of, uh, <laughs> and I believe it's a rare earth mining companies, which is really, really fascinating. Um, and also it's kind of scary, the micro-targeting on, on social media, you know. Yeah. And it, it kind of ties into a lot of kind of, a, you know, bigger, bigger themes in, in the news today, which you should probably know, um, you know, but I would, I would love for you to kind of break this down a, a little bit more, Jill, for our listeners, because it's, it's, I think our brains can't take all of it in at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> no, totally. On. And it, I always <laughs> um, I used to get made fun of, it was a couple jobs ago, because I wrote about rare earths, like on a regular occasion. And I remember my colleagues being like, is it, do we need to write about rare earths? Yeah. <laughs> you know, this really, but in terms of technology, it's amazing like how influential this is. And, you know, these are, you know, in so basically those, you know, metals that are used in technology development at the very base components very often. And uh, China has dominated and really supplied um, about, I think usually what I see is at least 80% of the production Wow. Um, including in the United States. So there's been a big push in recent years. Defense Department has utilized rares from China, very inappropriate. So there's a big, a big push to manage that and find different sources and right. develop sources domestically, um, which has a lot of benefits. But China's coming in recently, and um, to your point, Rachel, launching this disinformation campaign on social media where what's interesting about it is they're basically going in and playing on fears. And like I said, a lot of people don't necessarily understand what this, what rare earths is and production in the United States would be, but they're bringing this up and kind of playing the lack of knowledge and the fear factor on that, you know, talking about, um, you know, whether or not, you know, it's gonna, um, you know, bring, uh, uh, what, what was a radioactive contamination and, you know, these sorts of scenarios and on social media, you know, the general population is reading that concerns grow. So it's interesting, like in some ways, disinformation has been happening for so long. We obviously saw it in the election and it had a big impact on the election. But this is a little different where for the election, it was playing on a divide that already existed without question. And it was pushing that and nudging that forward. This one, it's playing on fears. So and then it's it's creating um, people who have a lack of understanding of something and making a fear factor associated yes. with that, which could impact efforts. It could make companies suddenly unable to grow and to, to uh, be able to create this production line for the United States. So... It is interesting. It's a little bit of a different tactic that we're seeing. But, yeah. Jill, I, I think your your sense of, of following rare earth, you know, to, despite the uh, poking fun at you, is is right on. I was doing some research yeah. prior to the podcast, and in the '90s, the Chinese really undercut pricing to the point where most of the of of the rest of the world got out of rare earth mining. So they yeah. cornered the market. There's a precedent here. Yep. And these are materials. Before we realized how dependent we were on the market. Right. Yeah. And then yep. we came, became more and more dependent. So so seeing from a disinformation, a, a, you know, micro-targeting, as I think Rachel put in the notes, 
But seeing that disinformation effort falls in line with a, a multi-decade strategy to really dominate in that space yeah. and control it. And it does it does connect even, you know, our reason for trying to pull away from China is also a cybersecurity story, because if you really, you know, we talk about supply chain threats, these rare earths that are coming out of China are, are used in electronics, you know, for computer chips. I mean, right. this is at the very basis of, you know, the technology supply chain. So that's where really, you know, it's not just a disinformation because they want to dominate a market. It's that this is a market we can't allow them to dominate because it introduces right. so many threats into the supply chain. So it's an interesting right. story. And, and yeah. we're not even talking about lithium and, and some of the battery type materials that, right. we, that we need in, in massive volumes as we go to EVs. We're talking really rare components. Yeah. Yep. That we don't have a capability at this point in time to even create um, domestically. Right. And that's what we're trying yeah. to address. So, yep. Um, it's it's interesting too. It's um, you know kind of a China and um, how, do, how do I say this? Uh, <laughs> their their efforts to gain IP, uh, you know, for national benefit uh, and kind of the correlation to how many Chinese companies are, are really getting stacked on the Fortune 500 list as well. Yeah, <laughs> and that increase year over year over year gets pretty significant. Um, you know, as as they have these exploits, it's been fascinating yeah. to track. Well, and it's also funny because it does demonstrate the different threats when you look at Russia versus China. Both are yes. like certainly significant threats from a cyber as well as a global competition. Or I shouldn't say that. They're both cyber threats. China is a significant threat from a global competitive standpoint. Right. And yeah. the Defense Department has come out with full-on strategies on how we can respond to that to make sure that, um, you know, we win in that area. Whereas Russia, you know, they're not going to necessarily from an economic standpoint dominate. Right. But they are bold. And, you know, they're trying to um, kind of overtake from a geopolitical standpoint. So it's two right. different threats, really, which is interesting. I, yeah. I think China is the, the larger one. This week we had Chris Ray, the FBI director, and, and uh, Ken McCallum, the MI5 chief in the UK, get together. And Chris said, it's the Chinese government that poses the biggest long-term threat to our economic and yeah. national security. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Because of, you know, it's, it's that sly theft of IP, whether, you know, it's entrance to the Chinese market where you've got a partner or have a Chinese company lead your initiative or Chinese individuals and schools and, and universities and, and organizations in, in the rest of the world where they have access to that material. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And they can and export it. Yep. They can export it and they dominate in terms of trade partnerships in various regions of the world that are really important to the United States. You know, it's not like a, a country that to some degree is universally seen as an adversary. That's not the case for China. So, right. um, you know, it becomes it becomes challenging as the United States wants to make sure to not be cut off from other areas of the world. So, yeah. Yeah. And I just did a total sidebar. I, I just uh, got on TikTok for the first time like two weeks ago. Oh, boy. Oh, <laughs> You're done boy. for. You're done I, uh, for. I mean, hours. I've lost hours. You know, I'm, I, no more Twitter doom scrolling. Now I'm on TikTok and the algorithm figured out I like dog videos somehow. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of don't understand the point of TikTok, but I'm fascinated by it. Like, I still can't look away. So I know. <laughs> I, know. I can't either. I do not even have a TikTok. Um, 
account, but I mean, I have two kids, so they love TikTok videos and it's, you know, it's everywhere, but uh, it really is. And the time people put into creating these videos and I'm like, why? Rachel, <laughs> Rachel, Rachel, come on. <laughs> and it's Chinese owned. And that's what Chinese I'm saying. Owned. Yeah. And they want to turn yeah. on TikTok and it's, you know, it's, it's like a, like social media heroin, you know, it's like, I need my, my fix. I need my fix. Joe, yeah. we're not putting the podcast on TikTok. You have no. my commitment. As long as I'm alive, that's not happening. It's been interesting to watch, but it is a story of kind of global, you know, globalism, for lack of a better way to put it. And, you know, you know, what is China doing? What aren't they doing? Whether or not TikTok has taken the precautions needed in terms of where they house servers. But I mean, we all know, you know, how, you know, the Internet and, you know, digital capabilities work. They can certainly access this information if they want to. Um, You know, it's a matter of how sensitive that information is. Who knows? But yeah, yeah, it's been an ongoing story. This has been for a number of years. And with that, everyone, we are going to leave you with a cliffhanger for this week. Uh, Be sure to join us next week for part two with Jill Toro, where we really dive into the privacy conversation, making the media headlines right now. You won't want to miss it. Uh, as always, from from Eric Trexler and myself, thank you so much for joining this week's podcast. Big thanks to Jill Toro for joining us. I can't wait until next week's episode. Uh, and as always, please be sure to subscribe. You know, you get a fresh episode right in your email inbox every single Tuesday. So uh, until next time, everybody, be safe. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. 